If you have your Bibles, open them up to Deuteronomy chapter 9. We'll be looking at three chapters today, 9 through 11 in the book of Deuteronomy, um, focusing more for reasons that will become apparent in chapters 9 and 10. We are now in our study through the Ten Commandments in, in the book of Deuteronomy. We are now on the second commandment, which is there shall be no graven image as we read of this commandment, back in the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 8. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We consider this the second commandment. There are plenty of people out there, though, who consider this part and parcel of the first commandment. So many Catholics, many Reformed, uh, people who would see themselves going back in a tradition to Calvin, and Lutherans also see these first two commandments really as one and the same. That to have no other gods before God is also the same thing as to not have any graven images. To make up for the lost commandment that they've had to make them count to ten, they would say that there's two different divisions of coveting. You do not covet your neighbor's wife, and you do not covet their property, their possessions, what have you. We don't necessarily view it like this. I do think that this is actually the second commandment, and I think that the coveting commands fit very well together. Thou shall not covet. That being said, though, there is a reason why so many traditions have put these two commandments together, because they seem to be very, very well fit together. Here we have a commandment against idol worship. What we are going to find, however, as we read through our text today, is that the commandment against idol worship was really almost a test case for whether or not the first commandment was ever being followed. That is, if you are to have no other gods before him, you certainly cannot have any graven images of God. The fact that Israel was so likely to fall into idolatry and into making these graven images was a sign that they themselves did not love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. They didn't love the Lord like Deuteronomy 6 placed forward, that they were to love him this way. We get a feeling for this as we go to chapter 9 in the book of Deuteronomy. You're going to find as we read through this that much of this is going to sound like chapters 6 through 8, and there will be a reason why. Chapter 9, and we'll read just at this first part, the first six verses. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess the nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, who you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. He shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. 
But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word of the Lord. He can confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Now, immediately upon reading that, the question becomes, how is this even remotely about idolatry? It doesn't seem as though it's about idolatry, and it doesn't seem like it's about graving images into stone or anything like that. Yet we know already, even from the hints that are being dropped here before us, that this is indeed about idolatry, and it, it is indeed about their wickedness shown in their idolatry. It's not that they are wicked because they made these sort of graven images, but they're making of graven images demonstrated that they already were wicked before God. We get a couple of hints that this is actually about idolatry before we even get into what Moses is going to talk about. First, the fact that God has proclaimed himself in verse 3 as a consuming fire is something of very large interest to us as it's come up before. So if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he said very clearly, When you looked up on Mount Horeb and I gave you the commandments, what you saw there was fire. You did not see an image. You didn't see a calf on top of the mountain. You didn't see a cow on top of the mountain. You didn't see a frog. You didn't see the sun. You didn't see anything. What you saw was a fire. Okay? Fire is, is one of the brilliant parts about fire. One of the things that makes fire so illuminating is not just that it produces light, but that it's random. It flickers and it, it flashes. It's, it's hard to pin down. You can't make just one image of a flame. It's hard to grave an image of a flame. He looked at that image, and then they were supposed to come to the conclusion later on in chapter 4 that you cannot, because this is how God has presented himself to you, you cannot make a graven image. So when he says, I am a consuming fire, he's reminding them that I am not something that you can make an image out of. Further, in the very last verse that we read, in verse 6, when he calls them stubborn people, the ESV is doing us kind of a disservice here. What the ESV is doing is actually interpreting the metaphor for us. But the actual wording of that should be, you are a stiff-necked people, which of course does mean stubborn, and in that sense is a fairly fine translation. But the fact that he's calling them stiff-necked people is important. That particular, particular phrase, stiff-necked people, only comes up about six times in the entire Pentateuch. It comes up three or four times, I believe it's four times, in Exodus 32, 33, and 34. The very part of the Pentateuch where the golden calf is being made and God is relaying his punishment upon the people. For him then to hear call them a stiff-necked people is again to remind them of what they did. What he is telling them in calling them stiff-necked people is to say, you made a calf before me. Listen, calves have stiff necks. I know that I didn't grow up on a farm, but I, I played Oregon Trail. I know that you yoke those things, so I know that how this works, right? <clears throat> They have stiff necks. That's one of the things that makes them able to plow and to, to put a yoke on them. But they also are stubborn in that they have stiff necks. They are becoming like the thing that they made. Or, better yet, the people made something that was much like who they were. They were stiff-necked. And so they made a molten calf image so that they might image themselves in their God. They are stiff-necked people. They are idolatrous and they are rebellious from the beginning. They always walked away from God. 
The point is not that they are they are somehow an evil people. The, the point is not that they are evil in, in, in spite of all the other people in the world, that they are more evil than the rest of the people of the world. It's not even that they are less evil than all of the people in the world. The point is that they look a lot like the rest of the people in the world. So they are not to think when God gives them the land that I'm getting the land because I'm somehow morally superior or uprightness in my heart compared to the people that dwelled in the land. No, God says, it is not because you're actually good that I'm giving you the land because you are not good. What Moses then turns to do is to show them how they were indeed a stubborn people. How are they a stiff-necked people? He does this. (coughs) Excuse me. In verses 7 through 24, if you'll read with me. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly. And at the end of forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here. For your people, whom you have brought from Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And as I looked... Behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Taborah also, and at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatavah, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up, take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. In order to show their wickedness, He goes back, first and foremost, to the incident of the golden calf. The very time when Moses has gone up the mountain for 40 days, he has been before the the Lord. 
In that time, the Lord God has been making for them the covenant. He has been providing for them the written laws written by the finger of God that they were to follow so that they could be his people and they would be his God. And in that time, they were so distressed that Moses hasn't come down that all the people go to Aaron and say, Aaron, make us a golden calf. Make us gods so that they can follow before us. When Moses comes down from the mountain then, you'll notice that what he doesn't do is just say, hey, you guys are breaking number two. See, number two, here, right hand, number two. You're breaking number two, but what does he do? He throws the entire Ten Commandments down before him. Both tablets of stone, he throws before them, and they all break. There's a reason why they all break. There's a reason why so much of Deuteronomy 9, 10, and 11, although it's functioning around the second commandment, deals directly with the first commandment. And that is because on the first commandment hang everything else. If you break the first commandment, it doesn't matter what you do with the others. Those are broken as well. Jesus said it like this. In Matthew 22, when a lawyer, scribe, came to him and said, hey, I want to test him, so I'm going to ask him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. That is the greatest commandment. The second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all all of the law and the prophets. When he says that, what he means is literally, they all depend on this. If you don't love the Lord your God, it doesn't matter what you do with the rest of the commandments. And furthermore, you cannot steal from people. You cannot commit adultery. You cannot murder. You cannot covet without first denying your love for the Lord your God. When he sees that they've made a golden calf, they have not just broken the second commandment, they've broken all of the commandments. We like to picture God's wrath. As if we were to picture God's wrath sort of as a boulder directly above us, held up with string. We tend to think of the laws as individual strings coming off of that boulder, holding it up, holding it away from us. So that if, for instance, we break one of those strings... If we steal, we can think, well, I'm not a murderer and I'm not an adulterer. So those, those strings are holding tight and I, I am saved from the wrath of God because of that. But the Bible doesn't ever speak that way. The Bible doesn't make it seem as though the wrath of God hanging over you is suspended by the law by ten strands or even hundreds of strands if you want to count all of the individual laws, but by one chain, one chain, with each law a link in that chain, so that if you were to break one link, you would be crushed by his wrath. That is what the law is pictured as. That is why Moses breaks both tablets when he comes down. More than that, it is not just that this idolatry is simply dependent on the rebellion, but it is a depiction of the rebellion, a depiction that goes further, both to Tabra, Kibaroth Havata, <coughs> excuse me, Massa, Kibroth, Hatava, and other places along the way where they continued to test the Lord their God. This was the epitome of the rebellion against God was the fact that they made an idol before them. Idolatry is breaking the commandments of God. Idolatry is the definition of rebellion against God, and it demonstrates our rebellion against God. So then, what must happen if we are What must happen if we are to be broken from our idolatry? First, there must be intercession. There must be intercession. 
9.25. So I lay prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. We need intercession for our sin. We have to have someone who is going to go before the Lord and plead for us, which is precisely what Moses does here. But please note how Moses does this. Moses does this on the basis of nothing else but the fame of God's name and his election of Israel. That is it. He does not go before them and say, listen, God, if you would just kindly be gracious to this people, if you would be kind to them one more time and give them another chance and, and please just be merciful and patient. He does pray for their, his mercy and his patience, but he does it because God has chosen them. Yes, we also, we also need to intercede for people. They were to be a kingdom of priests, but they had to settle for a kingdom with priests. They needed people to intercede for the, the people themselves because they were wicked. When we pray for people, we pray for them based off of election. Listen, election does not make God a hard and merciless God. Election is the only reason why God can be merciful to you. He can only be merciful to you because he has chosen you and simply loves you. There is no other reason to appeal to for God to be kind to you at all. Every time Israel sinned, Moses came back and he appealed to God on the basis of God's name alone. Imagine if God had done something drastically different than just choosing Israel. Imagine if he went to Israel while they were in Egypt and said, listen, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to have Moses put a sign-up sheet on Pharaoh's door. Anyone who wants to leave can leave. And I'm going to show great and powerful works, but you've got to sign up to leave. Anyone who raises their hand and walks the aisle can come with me and we will leave and we'll go away. So the people rise up. They do this. God shows <clears throat> miracle upon miracle. He brings frogs and locusts and gnats and darkness and boils and and plagues and eventually the death of all the firstborn children and he takes his people out into the wilderness through a great and mighty work spreads the sea open marches them across it covers up their enemies he brings them up to a mountain and they decide after 40 days that they don't trust him that he's going to do what he says and so they will turn and make a golden calf what is moses supposed to plead for them they signed up what is moses going to plead Show them more grace. Give them more mercy. God has already given them grace, and he's already given them mercy. These people don't need more grace and more mercy. That's not going to fix that, their problem. Moses prays for grace and mercy only because, only because God has 
chosen those people. It is only because God has gone out of his way to put his heart upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that Israel is allowed any mercy whatsoever. Otherwise, why choose Israel? Why not choose another group of people who haven't had that opportunity yet? Why not go to Pakistan? Why not go to China? Why not go to South America? Why not choose a different people for God? Only, only because God has put his name upon them. And it is the same for us when we intercede for people, when we pray that people might come to know the Lord. We are praying for their election. Listen, you can, you can love free will all you want to, but when you ask God to do a work in someone's heart, you are automatically praying that God limits their free will and chooses him instead. That is the nature of election. When you are praying that God saves the nations, you are praying that God so changes their hearts that they come to him. The changing of their hearts indicates that God's love is for them, which indicates that he elected them. This is the whole nature of election. This is why God can be merciful to us. It doesn't make God hard-hearted. It doesn't make him mean. It makes him merciful. And it is the only means by which he can be merciful for him to have put his name on you. We too need intercession for our sin. But second, we also need mercy. Read with me beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. At that time, the Lord said to me, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets, in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. The people of Israel journeyed from Baroth Benejakan to Masra. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gedogoth, and from Gedogoth to Jabbath, a land with brooks and water. At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name to this day. Therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain as the first time, forty days and forty nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you, and the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. You'll notice God is merciful here. He does not have to redo the covenant with them. He doesn't have to provide them a written witness of his love and his kindness to them, but he does. Moses goes back up and he says, I know that you broke those and you broke those for a good reason, but I will remake the covenant with them. Not only will I remake the covenant with them, but you will make a box, the Ark of the Covenant. Here is simply a... uh, In Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant has a, a more religious significance. Here it is to simply keep and protect the Ten Commandments. 
that God is saying, you will have these with you forever. These will go before you. I am making a commitment to you that these shall not be broken again. More than that, even in the the sort of parenthetical verses from 6 through 9, you get the sense that Moses' pleading for Aaron was also met with mercy. Aaron wasn't killed at that instance, but he got to travel on with the people. God was merciful and extended his life. God was merciful, not keeping them out of the promised land forever, but telling Moses to go before the people that they might enter the promised land. God provides mercy after the intercession. But we know very well that that's not going to fix the problem. What Moses has been telling us from the beginning of this chapter, even through halfway through 10, is this. You have been rebellious ever since I've known you. Ever since I laid eyes on you. Ever since I showed up before you, performing the miracles of God, you have been hard-hearted. You have been rebellious against the Lord. You have not followed him. You have not listened to him. God can continue to show them mercy. He can continue to show them grace. But it won't change the fact that they are always going to be sinful before him. This is one of the biggest and most important things the book of Hebrews picks up on in the New Testament. Year after year after year, a priest would have to cleanse himself from his own sin before going into the Holy of Holies to cleanse the people from sin. It was a never-ending process. God could never truly be fully with his people so long as sin stood in the way. What is the answer for that? The answer for that is nothing less than new hearts. Chapter 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. That sounds, by the way, a lot like chapter 6, right? Behold, To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. He says, you can look on the wide world and you know, you know, Israel, I own all of it. There's not a section of it that isn't mine. And yet even though all of it is mine, I set my heart upon you. You are to love me. How? Verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. You are to change the shape of your heart. Circumcision was a sign in Genesis 15, 16, 17, specifically in Genesis 17, was a sign of the covenant, was a sign that you belong to the promises of Abraham. It was a physical sign on the outside of a male's body that showed that he physically belonged to Abraham's covenant. And what God is saying now is what you need to do. If you are going to love me and serve me with all your heart and soul, if you are going to keep my commandments, if you are going to do the things that I have required of you, you have to do one thing, and that is you have to change your heart. You have to have on your heart the very seal of love for me. And be no longer stiff-necked. That is, don't be idolatrous anymore. But again, we already talked about stiff-necked. Being stubborn was simply an extension of the fact that they were rebellious in their hearts anyways. 
You see, God is asking them to do something that they cannot do for themselves here, but something that God himself, as we've talked about before, will do on his own. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, after Moses has told them, you will be kicked out of the land, the curses will come down upon you, God will forsake you, in a sense, and drive you to the utmost ends of the earth. He then promises to call you back, and in verse 6 he says this, (coughs) And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. That is the promise that Deuteronomy holds out. That is the promise that passages like Ezekiel 36 pick up on, where Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. It's incredibly a lot like what we just got done reading. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, that sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 30, which sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 12, which sounds a lot like the fix of the whole problem, which sounds a lot like what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The purpose of the law, the purpose of Israel in the law, was not so that we can look at Israel and think how horrible a people they were to spur God so much. Which, quite frankly, is how a great number of us read the Old Testament and think through the things of the Jews. When we see Pharisees and we see Sadducees in the New Testament, we just think, oh, hard-hearted Jews, again, just like your forefathers were. All of you need to see yourselves in Israel. They are no different than anyone else. That is the claim the Bible is making. Given everything that God has done for them, given all of the miracles that he has shown them, they still rebel against God because it's built into them. This is why the New Testament promise of new hearts and new souls matters so much. This is why we would be considered by many a freakish new birth church. Because you are not capable of living a life before God the way you were. As you were born in sin, you were incapable of obeying God in any way, shape, or form because you are a stubborn people. But because of the grace of God intercession of Jesus Christ before you, before God, for you for all time. You can have a new heart, one that beats for God. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that everything is going to puff away in a blink of smoke and you're going to walk perfectly before him. It does mean, though, that your heart will always lead you back to them, back to God. There will always be repentance for your sin. And God is faithful then to forgive all of your sin because of that. The difference from the Old Testament to the New Testament and from rebellion to sin for us. Rebels are always pushing away. 
Rebels are always trying to get away from God. That's the whole point. They're always pulling themselves away from God. This was the picture of the people on Mount Sinai. They continued to pull further and further away from God for fear of God. But in the New Testament, that is no longer what we do. Because, the book of Hebrews says, you have a great high priest, draw near. When we sin, we don't pull back from him anymore. But when we sin, we repent because we know he is faithful to forgive us for our sins. He gives us new hearts. This is what John 3 is talking about. When Nicodemus is asking Jesus about what it means to be born again, this is what it means. Chapter 11 of Deuteronomy goes on to fill in the exact picture that we've been talking about. That the people must follow the laws and commandments of God. They must rely upon what he has shown them to know who he is, to know how mighty and how powerful he is. To know that they're going in to take control of a good land, not like the land of Egypt, although good. The land that they are occupying is even better. One thing the 11th chapter does is it gets rid of any excuse that the people of Israel might have. When they are booted from the land, when they suffer under God's judgment for what is about to happen to them, it is not because the land wasn't good. It is not because God was not able. It is only because of their sin. The law exists not so that you might do it and be good before God, not so that you might be morally upright. The law exists to show you that you need God. That's the purpose of the law. It's to show you that you are an idol maker, that you make carved images all the time, whether they be in greed, whether it be in sexual immorality, whether it be in your anger and your own selfishness, regardless of what it is, you always put other gods before him. And until God gets a hold of you, before God changes your heart, None of that will ever change for you. You can fight and try and keep the law all you want to, and you will always fall short. Israel will, of course, fail. But their failure will be their own. They will have no excuses, no reasons outside of their own sinfulness to not both take and keep the land. God will be powerful to give it to them. But they only lack one thing, and that is a heart that honestly loves God with all their heart, mind, soul, and body. Our idolatry simply proves our rebellion as well, and it proves our lack of love for the Lord. How can we ever seek to be accepted before a holy God? Only through the intercession of Jesus Christ who, unlike Moses, unlike Moses, is good and perfect in all that he does. So we've talked about one of the reasons why Moses isn't taking the promised land is because he refused to intercede for the people. Jesus never refuses to intercede for you. Only through mercy and grace given to us through that intercession, forgiving our sins. Jesus Christ was crucified and died for your sins, and he was raised as a vindication for his sacrifice. Only through the gift of new hearts. We're making us to love God anew. We never get accepted by God through the law. We only get accepted by God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him. 
For in him alone will you be able to find a new heart and all the mercy and grace you'll ever need. He is sufficient for all of your needs. He is sufficient for all of your weaknesses. He is good to give you all that you need to do what the Lord God has commanded you. Love the Lord your God. Let us pray. Father, you are kind and good and merciful, yet we we know also that you are wrathful and angry with sin. We do not picture you correctly if we picture you simply as a God of grace and kindness and mercy. And do not fill that picture out with justice and wrath and and anger towards sin and sinner alike. For what is your grace if you are not angry? What is mercy if you do not have wrath? But Father, the fact that you are angry about sin and you hate it, that you are a God who is wrathful and prone to justice, this makes your mercy and your grace all the sweeter and all the richer. The law does indeed provide a sense of grace. It provides sacrifices and atonement for the people's sin. Even within the law, Father God, you have been kind to your people to build them a way that they might stand before you. But as John says, in Christ we have grace upon grace. It is pure grace. We are not here before you, Father, because we are good in and of ourselves. We're not here because we are righteous and noble. We're here only because of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. We ask that you will hear our prayers for the healing of the sick, for the mending of marriages, for the provision of brokenness, not because we ourselves are simply needy, but because you yourself have taken away our sin and our obstacle to you in Jesus Christ our Lord, because he is even now interceding for his people before your throne, that we might worship you and praise you forever. May you grace us with that this day. In Jesus' name, amen.